presenting this month's special series, Focus on Children's Health, on ReachMD, XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Your host is Dr. Bruce Bloom. Mucopolysaccharidosis 1 is a devastating lysosomal storage disorder. Joining me to talk about the challenges and management of that disease is Dr. David Pierce, director of the Sanford Children's Health Research Center in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Dr. Pierce, welcome to ReachMD. Thank you, Bruce. So tell us about mucopolysaccharidosis 1, or MPS1. What is it? How is it diagnosed? Let's just get a general understanding of this particular lysosomal storage disease. Like many lysosomal storage disorders, I mean, the initial observation on a child with this disease would be you know, simply a failure to thrive. The disease ultimately progresses where the child will not develop mentally and, and really have you know, major mental retardation and will have uh, short stature because there's bone abnormalities associated with this disease, stiff joints. The mental part of the disease will be the speech and hearing impairment. And as the disease progresses, it becomes more apparent that there's heart disease and other pain associated to the disease just because the children do not thrive or grow normally. And unfortunately, with all of these diseases, there is a very shortened lifespan. So the disease is actually diagnosed most often by a biochemical assay. There's a deficiency in a particular enzyme in the lysosome called alpha-L-I-duronidase. So there's a deficiency in this, and this enzyme is very important for a particular enzyme reaction. There's also genetic analysis that once the biochemical enzyme assay has been formed, mutations in the actual DNA of the patients can be characterized. And is this another autosomal recessive genetic disease? Yes, it is. I mean, parents will be carrying a defective recessive copy of a mutation in the, in the gene, the MPS1. And then children, if they inherit two defective copies from both parents, then they will have the lack of this functional enzyme and, and then the disease. And is there a test for the parents? Is there a way for us to discern whether or not two individuals might give rise to an offspring with this particular disorder? Yeah, like many of these autosomal recessive diseases, they're so rare. So, you, you know, this is not a test that you would have unless you'd already had a child with the disorder. Unfortunately, once you've had a child with this, then, you know, if the mutation has been identified in the gene for Hurler syndrome, yes, you could do carrier testing for this. And certainly, you know, potentially you could do prenatal testing as well. And this is one of a number of lysosomal storage diseases. Is Hurler's disease or MPS1 on the very rare side or is it on the more common side? I think that, you know, all of these diseases individually are considered very rare. When you are a regular pediatrician, would you begin to notice and go right to Hurler syndrome or is there some difficulty in discerning what particular issue is causing the developmental delay or the stature delay or those kinds of things, or is this an easy one to diagnose? No, I think any physician that would be presented with a child with Hurler syndrome would go down several routes for diagnosis. Children are just so diverse, obviously, and, and you know, when a, you know, a child under the age of one is, is clearly not developing or thriving, unfortunately, there are, there are many things out there that, you know, that could be uh, responsible for this. 
So it'd be a question of, you know, a process of elimination and, and working your way through it. If a physician had seen a child with Hurler syndrome before, I think then they were more likely to think that this could be the case. So you do both clinical care and clinical research on children with these kinds of diseases. Tell us how the information gets transferred back from bench to bedside and what kinds of things are happening in the area of clinical research for these kinds of diseases? For clinical research now, I mean, there's really two arms to this. So there are outcomes measures, which are very important for for these rare diseases. Uh, As I alluded to, obviously, you know, all children are just so different. So when you see what the, you know, the devastating effect of one of these diseases has on a child, you know, there's a lot of variation in the actual course in the development of the disease on these children. So then the other aspect, of course, of the clinical research is really, you know, trying to understand the biochemical basis or the molecular basis for the progression of this disease. And that, again, can be split into two arms where you may use cell lines established from the patients or mouse models that are created to recapitulate the disease in the mouse, uh, which we absolutely need because all of these types of diseases affect the brain or the central nervous system. And, of course, you can't experiment on children. So to understand the course of the disease, you need a mammalian model, and, and mice is the cheapest form of model that we use. And when we create a mouse model of this, do the things that we see happen to the mice in the lab typically transfer over to the patients, or what percentage of time are mice turning out to be actually different than the human patients that we're trying to treat? Yeah, I think it's a mixture of both. Obviously, mouse is not man. I mean, you know, if I was to sort of, you know, say the size of a mouse brain is about as big as my thumbnail right now. So obviously, it's, you know, not as complex in terms of just the size and the architecture. And and obviously, many of the functions that a mouse can do compared to a human being. But in terms of understanding the basic effects of these mutations and these insufficiencies, we can gain a huge amount of information from these mice and understand a little bit more about the disease. Now, does it translate back to the children? Often it does, because remember, we can't access some of the information from the children. We can't really look at the effect on the brain in such detail that we can on the mice. So the problem there is, of course, again, a mouse is not a man. So although we can define a little bit more of the pathogenic aspects of the disease in the mice, when we go back to the children, of course, you know, is this the correct way to maybe try and correct the disease? You know, that becomes more of a black box in terms of can we apply what we've learned from the mouse to the children themselves? Because at that point, you know, we have to make that jump from mouse to man. And then, of course, a lot of those differences that exist may block our progress. What kinds of treatments are being done in MPS1 and other lysosomal storage disorders to help these kids? So there's various approaches where you would try and basically replace the insufficiency or complement the insufficiencies. So in MPS, the way you would want to do it is is to replace the idonuridase enzyme so the, the two ways you could do that would be through enzyme replacement therapy. So you could generate the enzyme and then do an intrathecal injection and, and hope that this protein is taken up into cells. And that would restore the enzyme activity in the cells that got that. The other way is really, you know, so there's essentially a bone marrow transplantation where you would uh, put cells in that would be normal and these cells would actually have the enzyme itself and this enzyme you know, these cells could essentially replace the cells that don't have the enzyme and that also secrete the enzyme, giving the activity. And they're the two approaches that 
are actually being, you know, have been done generically for many lysosomal storage disorders that actually have enzyme insufficiencies. And for MPS1, there is a drug called liranidase that does substitute. It's the enzyme. How effective is that? And what are some of the risks of using that kind of replacement therapy? So there is a clinical trial ongoing right now. And I'll be honest, I really don't know how well these types of studies take a long time because there's very few patients that actually have these diseases. And because of the fact that children, as I say, progress at different rates, how effective these treatments are, you know, need to be carefully done in several individuals to see what the outcomes are. So I think the best I can say right now is I know that trial is ongoing. Obviously, the transplantation that's being done is is obviously putting cells in there that have the capability or protein in there that has the capability of restoring some sort of function. Whether it will have a negative effect, I can't comment on other than the research has shown that obviously that you do raise an immune response when you do these types of things. If you've just tuned in, you're listening to ReachMD, XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Joining me to discuss the lysosomal storage disorder, MPS1, is Dr. David Pierce, director of Sanford Children's Health Research Center in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Is it possible to do a genetic transplant for these patients and put in the piece of gene that's not presently working in their body? And would that be a potential alternative treatment for these patients? Yeah, so there's many studies now focused on, I think you mean gene therapy, is that right? Yeah. Yeah. So gene therapy studies, again, have been primarily done in mice models uh, where you would take a virus and basically take the uh, gene have the virus infect cells, and then the virus can then make the protein. The major problem with the lysosomal storage disorders and these types of approaches is that they affect the brain or the the central nervous system. So actually uh, having viruses infect the brain is somewhat of a challenge uh, in terms of getting good infectivity across the brain. There has actually been a gene therapy trial in late infantile Batten disease, which is an enzyme insufficiency that causes a lysosomal storage disorder. This was actually at uh, Will College in New York. And this was a safety and efficacy study. So I think we can say right now that using this type of approach, it has been demonstrated that it's safe and it's tolerable. The children with, you know, in that particular trial were very severely affected with respect to the disease. And I think from the outcome measures, they were stabilized, but it was very difficult to really ascertain whether there was any, uh, you know, improvement in their disease. Let's go back and talk about some of these outcome measures. So if you were evaluating the success of any treatment in MPS-1, what kind of outcome measures would you look at and what would be clinically significant? The outcome measures that I, we would actually do, you would have to have a pediatric neurologist who would have evaluated several of these children. And that's the real trick of all of these lysosomal storage disorders. You absolutely need to have someone who's seen many children with these rare diseases. So you can really get a baseline on uh, some of the, the decline that you would see, particularly in terms of you know, cognitive measures and in many cases motor measures. The catchphrase for these is, is you would need a rating scale for the progression of these diseases over a period of at least, you know, two to three years, preferably longer, but because of, you know, the severity of these diseases, you know, you want to expedite things as quickly as you possibly can. So then you would have those measures, and these would just be simple neurological tests that could be performed just, you know, in a visit in terms of, as I say, just cognitive tests 
primarily. And are some of these kids so significantly impacted that it would be actually difficult to measure any improvement that they had, even though they might be doing better? Yeah, unfortunately, all of these diseases are very rapid in, in many cases. There's only so many things that you can actually assess in a child with, which you know, has severe neurological decline. And often when you get to a certain point, you know, there may not be any other measure that you can actually devise to see you know, if there is an improvement. Unfortunately, at this point, you know, if they get to a baseline where you cannot, cannot measure the neurological function, then you, know, you would suspect that at that point, you know, any treatments will probably not improve uh, neurological function. And when we look at imaging the brain and nervous system of patients like this, do we see characteristic differences and could we use imaging as a way to tell us whether or not anything's been impacted by these treatments? That's a perfect segue because that is the absolute best way to do it, I think, in terms of, you know, if you can devise the correct imaging protocol, if you know exactly which part of the brain is affected, you can look to see if you're, you know, you're having a slower decline in the disease. Many of these diseases, we know there is massive cell loss in the brain. So if this is characterized well, yes, that would be a great uh, time course to follow. The problem with that, of course, is, is that over a course of you know, a period of time, you need to characterize the cell loss in a group of patients so you know what you're looking for. I remember speaking to Dr. Paula Leone in New Jersey, who's working on Canavan's disease, which is another one of these lysosomal storage disorder. And she's been working at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia on doing those kinds of things. If we had those kinds of tests, how might we use them to augment our clinical research? It would just expedite things, Bruce, I think. I mean, you would have the most refined measure you could have, you know, not just clinical function of the patients, but you would actually be able to see inside the brain, as it were, to see if there was no loss or a slower loss of cells in the brain. I think in terms of the actual application itself for, for research and then moving on, I think as you would do this imaging, we would gain a greater understanding of the cell, the regions within the brain that would be targeted by these diseases first and foremost. We still have a very primitive understanding of how the human brain in the fine mapping sense is affected by these diseases because much of what we do is guided by our male studies. And as I previously mentioned, you know, mice is not man and you know, we can't really, you know, trust everything we get from the mice in terms of the cell loss that we see in, in these animals. Our guest has been Dr. David Pierce, Director of Sanford Children's Health Research Center in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, and we've been talking about lysosomal storage disorders like MPS1. Dr. Pierce, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Bruce. You've been listening to Focus on Children's Health on ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. 